thanks, Aaron. Um, those of you who are in a relationship of some kind or who have friends at this very moment, which I hope is everybody, <laughs> uh, how many of you knew those people when you were in high school? Anybody? You knew me when you were in high school? Okay, well, okay. Anyway, <laughs> good point. Uh, for, like, people who are married, did you know each other in high school? Yes? Wow. No? Yeah? No? Cool. You were, wait, say that one more time. Oh, ooh. Oh, right. I feel like I knew that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, I am personally incredibly glad that I did not know Caleb in high school. Uh, I am hoping, not because of Caleb, that makes it sound really bad, but because of like who I was in high school. Uh, yeah. I am a middle child, so that means that I come like fully loaded with like the drama and competition package. And, yeah, and Caleb was also a middle child, which means we're perfect, you know? Uh, <laughs> perfect together, not perfect as people. But anyway, uh, Caleb was also incredibly competitive, and I thought I was competitive until I met Caleb. And uh, when we first were married, I didn't know, but he had a secret competition to see who could brush their teeth the longest. So he'd be like, brushing our teeth, and he would always finish immediately after me. And I was like that's weird and then one time I just kept going and we're like locked eyes and we're like <laughs> what's happening right now and then he finally told me he's like I just kind of try to beat you every time <laughs> and like finish brushing my teeth last so I'm the best teeth brusher and I'm like you are weird <laughs> like this is wild uh, but when I was in high school, I was the, the girl that when the old woman of the church was like, hey, young, strong boys, can you bring the chairs? I was like, I got this. And I, like, loaded my arms with chairs and would, like, struggle, you know, to prove that I was also strong and capable. Uh, yeah, I was the weird kid in my youth group who was like, I'm going to beat everyone. Um, so in high school, I had a lot more guy friends than girlfriends because I was like, girls are too much drama. But in reality, I brought the drama to my like friend group of guy friends. Um, but they seemed like, you know, less annoying to be around. Uh, and I was also interested in updating a boyfriend, but not like obsessed, just like open to the subject. You know what I mean? A little obsessed. Uh, but my, my friend group consisted of like seven guys and three girls, including myself. And I figured that the best way to get a boyfriend was to show them that I was strong and capable and that I could keep up with them and like their, you know, games and doings and stuff. And so that's exactly what I did. So when we were playing card games or like ultimate frisbee or dodgeball, I was like, this is my time to shine. I'm going to show them I can win. And I did, often. Dodgeball was like my rec sport of choice. And like I was a thrower in high school, and I was also a catcher, so like I could sling a gator ball, you know what I'm saying? And often <laughs> would intentionally choose where I threw the gator ball to be like, now you know that I'm the best dodgeball player. 
you know, it hurt, hit him where it hurt kind of a situation. I've asked, I've asked God to forgive me for that. <laughs> uh, so I was like, I am winning at these games. And so they're like, yeah, she wins at these games. This is amazing. Uh, and so one time I had my friends come over to my house. We had a bonfire. And the guys were like roughhousing. And then I talked myself into a tussle. You know what I mean? I'm just like, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm also a big dog on the block. And it, it, the whole situation ended with me putting my friend Andrew on the ground in a headlock. And the rest of the guys were like laughing at him. And I was like, this is it. I wish to win. I'm going to get a boyfriend. <laughs> Because now they know that I am so strong. Uh, I thought it was such a good time. Uh, but you know what? Even though I was capable, smart, athletic, you know, strong-willed, that was not the way to get a boyfriend. Like, I totally misinterpreted what it meant to, like, have somebody be attracted to me, you know? And I was like, ha, 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 they're all laughing. They like to hang out with me. That means that I'm getting closer. And I just totally misread the signs of what that meant. Uh, so in reality, I was like taking a major shot at their pride, you know, and at their manhood, even though it was like super toxic, that they were like, oh my gosh, girl beat me. Uh, in hindsight, I'm not so mad that I did those things <laughs> because I'm like, yeah, put you in your place. Uh, but it wasn't until college that I met this like wonderfully sweet and patient person and who was less toxically masculine who told me, uh, no wonder you didn't get a boyfriend. This is a quote I have in here. No wonder you didn't get a boyfriend before. Pegging guys with dodgeballs like that only hurts their pride. That's exactly what Caleb told me. <laughs> uh, so, you know, my cutthroat uh, winning spirit did win me two intramural championships. Caleb did not win those, so it's kind of worth it. But, uh, and now also, I've been winning the toothbrushing competition. <laughs> okay, technicality, right? <laughs> he literally was like brushing too hard, and the dentist was like, You have receding gums because you're brushing too long. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so. I obviously didn't understand those signs and signals, and it changed the way that I perceived the world and then my actions following that. And that is what John is talking about in chapter 11 and 12, I guess, of this gospel. And so in these chapters, we are watching Jesus do these like signs and signals, and we are also watching the people around him, like goof it up you know the disciples are notorious for this of like jesus does a thing and the disciples are like this is what that means and jesus is like no it's not um so we're watching jesus move around and talk to people and heal people perform miracles and this gives us a clue to what jesus is actually here to do um, and a lot of the time when we look at these signs and signals we're totally misinterpreting them and so john talks about the signs that jesus is doing uh, and we can end up like counting seven of them in the gospel. And this one that we read, the raising of Lazarus, is the seventh one. And this is modeled after another seven-day situation, the creation story. Wow, seven days in creation, seven signs. And John's uh, gospel even begins with in the beginning. So this is supposed to help us think about creation, about what God has been doing in the world 
uh, through Jesus. So this is a reinterpretation of the creation story in light of the new thing God is doing through Jesus. Uh, So growing up, I heard that these miracles of Jesus were proof that Jesus is God. It's like, we know that Jesus is God because Jesus healed so-and-so or Jesus raised so-and-so. But the thing is, like, Jesus never let people interpret it that way. Like, people in the Bible said that. And Jesus would literally say to them, like, false prophets and messiahs are gonna, are gonna do great signs and, and omens. And then when people demanded proof, he was like, you are an evil and adulterous generation for demanding proof from me. He's like, I'm just doing my thing and you are chalking that up to, this means that I am God. And so, Jesus is saying that God is so present in the world that it would be weird if we didn't see miracles. It's not that we see a miracle and so God is in the world. It's the other way around. And so Jesus gives us a glimpse into what God is doing in the world and the way God has always imagined the world and who we are and what the world should look like rather than what it does look like. And that's where the Pharisees get it wrong which is all the time. <laughs> they cannot seem to, under, to accept the fact that God is doing something new, that God is telling a new story through Jesus, and they constantly misunderstand Jesus because they're interpreting it through the old story, through the Old Testament and the Torah and the way they had expected things to be this entire time. And they just can't make this mind shift that Jesus is totally wrecking stuff and doing things in new ways, and so they often get it wrong. The sign in this particular part of the gospel has two functions. First, it's uh, the event that provokes the crucifixion of Jesus. So this is the event that the religious leaders see and say, we gotta take that guy down, you know what I mean? We have to destroy him because we can't let him go on doing this thing because people might believe him. And second, the miracle serves as a preview or a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection. So this last thing, Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead. And then we know that in just a few days, Jesus will also be doing the same thing. And before raising Lazarus, Martha Martha says that, uh, tells Jesus that, Uh, or Jesus tells Martha that I'm the resurrection and the life and the one who believes in me will live even though they die and Jesus' own resurrection is going to provide this life. So in the text, here we go. Jesus answers the Jews in a way that they did not want in like a couple chapters before so they tried to kill him. This has happened like two times. They're trying to like murder this guy so he like runs across the Jordan, and he's safe over there. He's like not being hunted. You know, people have generally forgot about him in some sort of way. Uh, But now he finds himself in the place where John the Baptist was baptizing, and he finds himself in the wilderness, the place of his temptation. And uh, this is one of the reasons why this is such a great Lenten passage, because Jesus is back in the wilderness, back in this temptation time, back in this trial, And uh, if you've ever spent time in the woods, that you might have experienced the woods in one of two ways, either disorientation or reorientation. For some of us, 
you might not like being outside, and it's like a horrible experience. And for some of you, you might gain some new understanding or some new revelation about life by being outside. And kind of both things happen for Jesus. So Jesus learns that Lazarus is sick, and John makes it very clear that it's really weird that Jesus did not like immediately go, but he stayed a couple days longer. And this is like really important uh, because he doesn't tell anybody like, I'll be there in a couple days, you know, I'm on my way. He doesn't say anything. He's just like, we need to be here for a little bit longer and then goes. Um, and so Jesus is out there in the wilderness wrestling with the Father and praying. That's always what Jesus does when he's out alone or out in the wilderness. And so he's had these two attempts on his life. And so going back to the city, going back to Bethany, means it's this huge risk. Like he knows what's going to happen if he goes back. If he goes back to Jerusalem, he's going to set in motion these events leading up to his death. And he's wrestling with that with God. He's wrestling with this ultimate reality of his death. And so Thomas finally says what everybody has on their minds, and he's like, well, if we're all going to die, we might as well do it together. And they all just like bebop back on over. And so if we believe that these, this sign, the raising of Lazarus, is only meant to prove Jesus' identity, then we would interpret that the fact that he stayed in the wilderness for two days would mean that he was there so that Lazarus could die, so that he could raise him from the dead, so that people would believe him. But if we read the story in this new way, then John is saying the more likely answer is that Jesus is doing what Jesus does best in the wilderness and listening for God's voice, listening to what God is asking him to do. And so Jesus arrives, it's been four days, and this is well past the customary belief that like the soul might stay around for three days and re-enter the body. So like Lazarus is like dead as a doornail, you know? Everybody knows he's a goner, he's not coming back. Uh, there's no hope for this. And many people have come from Jerusalem to Bethany to like console Mary and Martha. So there's a lot of people in town and no matter what Jesus does, it will be heard by a lot of people and they'll go back to Jerusalem and talk about it. So there is no other option than Jesus is being outed at this moment. So everything that he does is gonna be incredibly public. And so he's about establishing pockets of shalom, right? Everywhere Jesus goes, he establishes a pocket of shalom or peace. Whether it's healing people or just talking with people who are not talked to or talking about this alternate reality that God is trying to, trying to establish or is establishing, this pocket of shalom appears. And the death of Lazarus is going against that shalom, is going against the peace. So Jesus has to decide, is he going to go against the ultimate disruption of shalom or death? What is Jesus going to do against this shalom wrecking thing? Martha comes up to Jesus and says, if only you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. To which Jesus responds that he'll be raised up. And Martha's like, yeah, in the end of days and the resurrection, of course he'll be raised up. And this is the, the thing that Jews and Christians believe that would happen in the future, that God would abolish violence and death and then only beauty and peace would remain. But Jesus is asking Mar Martha to imagine that the, that future happens 
right now. So he's asking her, I want you to think about that future resurrection, but right here, right now with me, because Lazarus is not going to stay dead. Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. And so eventually Mary says a similar thing and begins sobbing. And when Jesus sees this, a great emotion arises up within him. But another translation of this little section is when Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. And he said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. Others among them said, well, if he loved them so much, then why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the eyes of a blind man. This is a really like, harsh response, in my opinion, for Jesus. Uh, the, the main difference here is the way they characterize his emotion. So in the one we read in the NRSV says that a deep emotion welled up in him and he cried. Uh, and then this one, it said anger welled up in him and then he cried. And I always remembered this, this particular passage because, uh, one, it contains, like, the shortest verse in the Bible. You know, Jesus wept. A uh, little quizzing trivia for you. And because of how much Jesus loves Lazarus. Like, man, Jesus loved him so much that he cried when he died. But I think that's an old story reading. I think that's a misinterpretation of what this passage could mean or what Jesus is actually doing. So right off the bat, we know that Jews and the disciples always misunderstand Jesus. So why would we believe them when they said, oh, he loved him so much that he's crying? Like if they get it wrong all the time, why should we believe them when they say this thing? And also they're being kind of like sassy. You know, Jesus' friend had died and they're like, well, you know, he could like heal blind people, but he didn't want to raise this guy from the dead. Like that's not something you say to somebody who's grieving. Like that's horrible bedside manner, you know what I mean? So we should not listen to them at all. And the huge part here is that Jesus cries in response to seeing where Lazarus has been laid to rest. Not that Lazarus has died. He heard that like two days ago, that Lazarus was sick and dying. And he wasn't weeping then. But when they brought him to the tomb, that is when he started weeping. And so I think Jesus is feeling all of these feelings. He is feeling grief of his own impending death, like he's looking into a tomb that he knows he's going to be in in a few days. Like he had just spent all this time in the wilderness talking with God about this and wrestling with this thing that he's going to do, and now he's standing there looking into a tomb, one of his best friends, and he has to wrestle with this reality of, one, this is going to be me. Two, my friend just died. And three, these people don't understand what I'm trying to tell them. And yet I'm going to die in just a few days. And this is like the most human thing that I think I, have, I see in Jesus, is wrestling with mortality. Even though Jesus is God, Jesus is also human. And that's something we wrestle with. So death has disrupted this shalom and he must move against it. But if he does, he's ushering in this final sign, the raising of Lazarus, and he knows that that's going to be him in a few days. And so he has to make a decision. If he raises Lazarus, he's ultimately trading his life for Lazarus's life. And ultimately, he'll trade his life for our lives. And he was safe before coming here. He could have made the decision not to come across the Jordan, but now he was choosing this trade. So why did Jesus move against death in this way? 
Why could, was the man who could do so many of these signs and wonders, why was he choosing to die? Why couldn't he have saved himself from dying? N.T. Wright says, John is telling us the answer by a thousand hints and images through this book. It's the only, it is only through his death and it's only through his own sharing of the common fate of humanity that the world can be saved. There is a straight line on from Jesus' tears in verse 35 to the death in which Jesus will share not only the grief but also the doom of the world. So of course Jesus wept. There's a direct line between his death and the overcoming of Lazarus and the overcoming of death for the entire world. That's a big decision to make. So Jesus is ready to usher in this new space. He's ready to perform the seventh sign. And he believes that when God comes in contact with the shalom-robbed world, that God's life overcomes death. And in this passage, we find ourselves right before Passover. And we know that the Jewish people have already tried to kill Jesus a couple times. And all of a sudden, people move from wanting to kill Jesus a few chapters before this to Palm Sunday where they're welcoming him like a king. So what happens in between those two places? The seventh sign. People see that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the death, from the dead, and they believe in him. And their thoughts have changed about who Jesus is. This miracle sways the crowd to believe in the, believe in the Messiah. And this miracle sways the Pharisees to say, too many people believe in the Messiah, and we have to do something about it. But only Jesus is truly understanding what he's going to do. Obviously, these people don't get it. They misinterpret the sign that he has performed. And Jesus is like alone in this space, weeping, looking into the t- his future tomb. And no one understands what he's doing. What a lonely and horrible place to be. So, of course, Jesus wept. Jesus stood in front of his friend's tomb, looking into his own and wept from anger and pain and sorrow that's all mixed together. And those of us who have experienced grief can probably feel the same way. We've wept from anger and grief and sorrow all mixed together. And it's really hard to differentiate when one emotion starts and when the other stops. So here's the question. What is killing you? What is killing shalom for you right now in your life? What is bringing death into your life while you still live? We sit dangerously close to the edge of Lent, and Easter is just right around the corner. And there we will celebrate the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But for now, we sit in death, and we sit looking into our tomb. We're given 40 days to reflect on our own mortality and to think about the brokenness in our communities, the places where shalom has been disrupted, and it's time for us to look into the tomb of our best friends, into the tomb of our neighbors, and the tomb of strangers, and say, what are we going to do to go against the shalom-robbing reality? It's time for us to weep out of anger and sorrow and grief. And this wouldn't be a gospel reading without hope. We don't live in the pre-Jesus time, so we can't talk about death without hope. So through the faithfulness of Jesus, God is telling a new story, a good one, a one that restores shalom, and God is actively moving against the things that are trying to kill shalom in our world.
Jesus didn't wait. God didn't wait till the crucifixion to do this. God was doing this the entire time. And it's up to us to see those places and to be aware of where God is moving in our life. Jesus created these pockets of shalom all through his life, and we can do the same thing. God has moved against this things that ruin shalom and will continue to do so until everything is made new again. And so we can, we can participate with Jesus because Jesus stands with open arms asking us to participate together, asking us to do the hard work of crossing the Jordan and looking into the tombs of our friends. We walk in step with Jesus in this Lenten journey towards the crucifixion. We walk together in the pain and the sorrow and we get to make the hard choice. The ones that make us weep and the ones that make us angry. So, what is killing you? What tomb do you look into? Whose tomb do you look into? And how are you going to act against the things that are destroying shalom around you? Let's pray together. God, thanks for this group of friends who are willing to do the hard things and willing to be in messy relationships together. I pray that you would empower us to walk with Jesus and to make hard choices and to love our neighbors, even if that means trading our luxury and our joy so that others can have those things. I pray that you would give us hope as we are walking towards Easter, as we are coming to a close of Lent just a few weeks away. Give us hope to not be paralyzed by the hard choice that we have to make, but rather empowered and joy-filled that we get to make these decisions and make shalom in our neighborhoods. Help us to go from this place and be these kind of people that we've been called to be. It's in your name we pray. Amen.